Hey everyone, welcome to your favorite podcast, Techish. It's your host, our co-host, Abadesi of Hustle Crew, and my other brilliant co-host, Michael Pahane of Pocket and Techish in the house. Let's go. Go, 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 go. This episode is sponsored by Small Data Industries. They safeguard the permanence and integrity of the world's artistic record by supporting and empowering people. They are hiring for an administrative coordinator based in Brooklyn, New York. Link for the position in the show notes. All right, cool. So the first the first story is about a company called Brandless. I don't know if you've heard of them because they are brandless, so maybe you haven't heard of the brand. Um, <laughs> it was it was a direct to consumer play. Essentially, they were going to sell a whole bunch of like consumer goods, staples, food, um, like bathroom stuff, and it was all going to be brandless, and it was all going to be direct to consumer. It was meant to be affordable, whatever, whatever. They've been going for two years. They've raised two hundred and forty million dollars, and that number is going to be relevant in a minute. I'm going to explain. Um, and they were from SoftBank. So SoftBank's a VC firm based out of Japan that's raised a whole bunch of money and invested a whole bunch of money. Um, so yeah, they've gone out of business recently. Now they've made a statement saying, okay, yeah, the market's competitive and, you know, it's unsustainable for the business model. And, you know, they're going against Amazon. So obviously it's going to be difficult. Now, somebody on Twitter raised a fascinating point. Joe Spearman, great entrepreneur. He raised the point that, listen, I know so many black entrepreneurs that struggle to raise money and they pretty much raised more than nearly all black entrepreneurs and founders in the last like recent years. And it's like, we're struggling to get this money, but D2C companies that are not necessarily even tech companies are raising the equivalent amount in one, in one entity. And I Googled it actually. So black female founders raised 250 million in 2017, wow. right? And Brandless, this company that went bankrupt now or shutting down, raised 240 million on its own. <laughs> Now, I have thoughts. Make this make sense to me. Make it make sense to me. I don't know how to even tackle this whole subject. I mean, this is so frustrating. It's funny because I just came from my friend's place in Brooklyn and he has all these brandless products in his bathroom. So I was just like, oh, interesting. But it's incredibly frustrating. I remember when brandless first hit the market and had all this funding and everyone was like, oh, yes. This is exactly what millennials want. Millennials are rejecting the brands of previous generations. They want something that's affordable, minimalist, clean, etc. And it's I feel like SoftBank do not make good investment decisions. <laughs> oh, you think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, there's just so much cash to splash. And I kind of want to do a bit more digging about this because, you know, someone also put a tweet out saying, like, is SoftBank just laundering money? Because these these homies be writing checks like they're going out of fashion and i think it's more likely the fact that it's just been very easy for them to fundraise like apparently they went to like the saudis and they just got like boom a check just like that um so anyway they're like they're just like finding you know regions where there's like a lot of cash and like bring it to silicon valley but um i mean that's probably worth another techish investigation but you know this this is ultimately depressing for our community it's depressing the fact that the total sum raised by black women is equivalent to one single investment that a now fallen company has made um, is, is extremely frustrating. And I think a lot of people, to be fair, were kind of like not buying the narrative of when Brandless launched. Like, okay, so it's a it's basically a brand that isn't a brand and what else is unique about it? Because I don't think there really was anything else that unique about it. People were questioning the um, supply chain. People were questioning like, okay, well, is it more sustainable than a Procter & Gamble product? Um, Is it more ethical? Um, And, you know, they couldn't really answer those questions very well. And I think what you realized was ultimately, if you're going to enter 
a crowded space, you need to differentiate yourself in a way that's significant enough for you to gain market share. And they're competing in like a highly competitive space with like established companies like Unilever, like Procter and Gamble. And, you know, they were probably hoping what maybe to get an acquisition from one of those bigger brands. But, you know, if there's nothing unique enough about them, then how, how would that ever happen? I think, yeah, it's just like I said with Casper, like if there's no differentiation, like what are you doing? Like, and I don't see how you can justify all of that venture capital dollars flowing into it. I mean, I think I could sleep easy at night if I thought that 250 million number was going to like a SpaceX. Like I get it. Okay, mm-hmm. you're doing well, rocket ship to Mars. You need 250 million, right? But the fact that it's just going to a D2C play and it's like, yeah, I, I don't think it can be justified, you know, especially in light of that, the sum I mentioned for black female founders. Yeah, um, I also And think- actually, mm-hmm. got, sorry, quickly. so quickly about Casper, actually, I think they've, they've now... If you remember a few episodes back, I, I ripped into them. Apparently now, like for their IPO price now, they've really like played it down. And they, 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 they've, they've like the IPO target number they want to go for now is, is you know, in single digits now. Um, so I they think we're going to see a lot. And they were like, they're the techish, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a lot of high ranking Goldman Sachs officials listening to techish. They're like, okay, cool. The people have spoken. Yeah, this ain't the one. And I think, I think there's going to be a lot of blood in the water with, with these DTC companies. I think uh, it was a lot of hubris. I think they saw what happened with Dollar Shave Club. Yeah. And, uh, what happened with Warby Parker. And a lot of Me Too VCs uh, just backed a lot of Me Too companies. And that's my honest opinion. Yeah. I also just feel that um, if I look at DTC companies that uh, have been acquired by the, you know, by the OGs, you know, you have like Walker and Co. Um, you have something which is serving an underserved segment of right. the market. And the thing about Brandless was, other than the fact that they didn't have a brand and were like, maybe marginally cheaper, probably at the beginning and later, you know, had to increase prices when SoftBank were pushing them to go to profitability. And then they lost even that as their competitive advantage. What made them different? You know, what made them different? And um, I think there's like a real lesson to be learned here about people that want to enter D2C, how important it is to to be innovative um, and how important it is to like also understand like like realistically, what share of the market can you get? And I know a lot of investors say that when they receive pitch decks, um, this is one of the things that founders always inflate. You know, investors want to know, tell me what your total addressable market is. And and they'll always be like, oh, you know, $3 billion or whatever. <laughs> the universe. <laughs> I'm going to get 50% of it. And it's like, you know, I actually want someone that has done that deep analysis and been like, okay, like, to be honest, this is how much the global market is. But for the mm-hmm. first X years of my business, I'm only going to be in this one geography. And in this one geography, the total address of market is this, but it's actually dominated by, you know, these players. And so realistically, what I can actually serve based on, you know, my target demographic is this. And this is what I project. That's where you're realistic. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Branas went in there, guns blazing, going, yeah, I'm taking down, taking down Unilever, taking down Procter & Gamble or whatever. And, you know, how, how easily are we willing to switch the things that we buy, like shower gel, shampoo, conditioner, especially if we're just like a middle of the road consumer whose needs are already met by things that are on the shelves. Like, fair enough if you have Afro hair or something more complex that isn't served by the incumbents. But, you know, ultimately, you're still going to the pharmacy to pick up your prescriptions or, you know, going to the drugstore that's in the grocery shop as you're, like, getting food on your way home from work. There isn't Mm. enough incentive for me to invest in another subscription if I'm just, like, 
popping these things into my shopping basket on my way home from work anyway. So let's have a quick business session strategy mm. storming. Yeah, I'm going to throw some ideas. Yeah. And you tell me if they're any good. Now, let's say I had 100 million sitting on deck and I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to buy out all the remaining assets of Brandless, right? And I have seen people tweet say like, who do I speak to to buy out Brandless? And I'm thinking, Ooh. what are you buying? The brand? Because it was meant to be Brandless. I don't understand. <laughs> <But> anyways. <laughs> so anyways, yeah. Yeah, rebrand it. I don't know. So to me, what they did wrong is that they tried to make it a cheap alternative. So a lot of the items were priced at $3. But I'm thinking if you're targeting millennials, make it something where it's like, it's more sustainable, make it something where it's more premium, make it something where it's more, you know, um, you know, it's just a, a premium high end product and it's got a minimalistic packaging. Then you're talking, but don't say we're going to be no brand. We're going to be minimalistic and everything is dirt cheap because if I want cheap, I'm just going to go on Amazon. You know so what I'm saying? True. That's the wrong consumer, right? So like, exactly. subscribe and do you think I'm on the right tact? Am I on the right? Yeah, exactly. Am I on the right tact? Do you think that would have been a more better strategy? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, we are more flexible when it comes to price. We don't have as that inelastic um, price as like previous generations that, you know, we, we've just gotten used to paying for the values that we subscribe to. And I think right. that's really spot on. Yeah, pass my avocado toast. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> Anyways. So, you know what? On a separate but related topic, um, so an amazing uh, black female founder, because it's related to what we mentioned before, called Jasmine Crow. She's uh, got a company called Gooder. I'm not too sure, actually, about the background of the company, but um, she's raised, like I think, a few million. Um, and she basically tweeted out a horror story with her and a VC essentially where she didn't mention what the specific VC fund was. It, she said she had a, a meeting with a VC associate. So it wasn't a partner. Um, and the meeting started off like any VC call would company background, traction, revenue, etc. Um, and then he said, the associate mentioned offhand, um, actually we invested in another black female founder this year or last year. So I don't think we'll do a deal this year when you are raising. <laughs> wow. He let it slip. He let it slip. Now, that was either a, you know, a Freudian slip where he didn't mean to say that, or he just revealed an absolute concrete truth. But how would you have reacted to, to a statement saying, we've we've already given money to a black female founder, so actually we're not giving one to you? What do you say? I mean, I would be like, thank you, next. Like, that is yeah. just game over for me. Um, anyone that's, like, tokenizing people in that way or just making strategic decisions based solely on race and gender, to me, inclines, y'all are making smart decisions here. Um, I saw this tweet and I said as much to to Jasmine. If if there are people that are still saying, "Oh, but we've already got one, um, <laughs> we've filled our quota," uh, that's that's just concerning. That's just worrying. It also makes me feel like they're just prioritizing the wrong things. I want right. investors that have a solid thesis backed by data, backed by um, you know insights into where the market is going where opportunities are growing and you know being able to predict the future you know I want them to have a vision of the future 10 20 50 years down the line that aligns with the causes I believe in and the trends I see and if you are short-sighted enough to say oh we've already invested in one black woman for the year and that's us done then you're sleeping man you're sleeping because do you, you think know, do you think it's a situation where they view investing in black founders or you know underrepresented founders in general as charity and that essentially it's a pr move and that we've done our one for the year therefore mm. we can move on is that yeah, is that absolutely. where is that do you think that's what it is there's like a very very strong current of discrimination in that statement because it it's exactly as you said i've ticked that box i've done that i i only did it so i could say that i've done one and now i've done that mm. one i'm not interested i i don't really 
take people from this background seriously as investment opportunities. So, you know, I've done my one and that's it. That That's, you know, what do you think? I agree. Yeah. I think they were actually fortunate that she didn't expose who the VC fund was because that could really have like, you know, you know, certain shockwaves and damage the reputation of that specific VC firm. But would it? Uh, but maybe, would it? You're right. like, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm yeah, too optimistic. The frustrating thing about being underrepresented is the fact that while we are able to mobilize change when we move through the grassroots, even then it's still challenging. And even then we are still not the gatekeepers. You know, we are still right. not the gatekeepers. And this is what's so tough about being black in tech or being gay in tech, a lesbian in tech, or whatever, you know, underrepresented identity you fall into or identities you fall into. Because when you look at who's in charge and who holds uh, power, it's almost always still white men. Okay, some of them are gay white men. Some of them are like working class white men. But for the most part, they're still white and they're still men. And when we start saying things like oh, don't go to XYZ Capital because they said something that's sexist and racist, guess what? XYZ Capital can turn around to all their other peers and be like, she's toxic. Don't touch her with a 10-foot pole. I had, yeah. I didn't even say anything racist to her. I didn't even say anything sexist to her. And now look at her. Now guess what? XYZ like, Capital telling all their people. And who's who, like, let's be real for a minute. It, when it comes to emotion, who do we trust? We're not trusting mm. the data. We're trusting the people that we know. And mm. I'm just speaking from my own personal experience. Like every time that I have spoken out and been like, Hey, excuse me, I'm being treated really unfairly here. No one came to have my back. And that's why I built hustle cool. And that's why I started building communities because when I looked around the workplace and I was like, Hey, other women, someone's just harassed me. No one had my back. Cause all, all it took was that person to be like, she's lying. And no mm. one believes women in our society. Like, it's so hard for us to believe women. And it's even harder if they're black. Shout out to Hustle Crew, man. So the other thing I wanted to talk about was um, there's this common uh, narrative that gets spun out by a lot of right-wing media personalities, this idea of a narrative violation. So they'll quote tweet like an article that maybe goes against what might be seen as like a left-wing narrative. And they'll say, oh, it's a narrative violation. This is the ultimate narrative violation that what? I've seen, basically. So, <laughs> I know, so it's, yes, you because listen, I don't blame you for not knowing any of this rubbish. But anyways, the stat came out that US entrepreneurship is near a 40 year low. So essentially, the narrative violation is that a lot of VCs will just be like, listen, we're in the golden age of entrepreneurship. We're funding right, all these okay. companies, right? You know, it's never been easy to be an entrepreneur. Technology has democratized access to entrepreneurship. You can start a website. You can start, start a Shopify store. You don't necessarily have to work for the man no more. You can do your own thing. It's never been easier, blah, 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 blah. But actually, the data shows that it's a 40-year low in wow. people starting companies. This is US-centric data. So we're going to have to put on our US-centric you know, centric lenses, right? Mm. Um yeah. The article basically, yeah, and the article essentially says, um, you know, things like uh, the fact that it's, you know, that the war. This is an old trend, but like, you know, Walmart and Amazon have made, basically made it harder for you to start a little mom and pop shop. Um, software has made it harder for you to be like a little solo accountant, for example. And yeah, I mean, is there anything else that comes to mind where you might be like, okay, this is actually an impediment to entrepreneurship? Because even me, I'm not gonna lie, I got suckered into this belief because I thought, yeah, I started a company. It's, it's, and I could have done this company that I'm doing right now 10, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. So it is easier. But I don't know. What, what do you think? 
So do I think it's harder to be an entrepreneur? I mean, it's so difficult over that timeline because I'm not even 40 years old. And I think that is one of the tough things about macro trends that it requires you to zoom out to a a point where it's actually like extremely hard to to comprehend. Um, I was speaking to John Henry of Harlem Capital for uh, the Product Hunt podcast yesterday. And he was saying how when he first went into business, you know, well over 10 years ago, it, he wasn't really thinking about it in the scale of I need to build a unicorn. I need to get venture funding. Yeah. I need to dominate the market. He was just like, I'm just going to like set out and do like a small thing, make some money, see where it goes. And he mm-hmm. says like the narrative now is very much, um, you know, unicorn or bust. And I think right. in that sense, that could be why we have fewer people participating in it because, you know, entrepreneurship has become a career path. It's like well publicized. The media love to glorify the people who have sort of got rich, quotation marks overnight and mm-hmm. i can see how that might put people off trying to pursue just building like a small or medium-sized enterprise because you're just yeah. like okay i either choose this highly risky volatile uh intensive path of sort of becoming the next mark zuckerberg or whatever or i just get a job and it almost feels like there's no in-betweens because it's so unusual for us to throw the spotlight on people that are just building sustainable businesses yeah, so there's two points that was also raised and I think that have some validity to it. One is that the companies that are big now, so the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Teslas, um, they're much more innovative than old big companies like IBM back in the day. So they're much more able and quicker to spin out their own version of something. So for example, Facebook can s- spin out of a clone of Snap. Okay, that fails, but then they can just integrate Snap's features into Instagram, for example. So these big companies are much quicker to kind of um, destroy and decimate newer companies, basically. Um, you haven't seen a new company form in the social, you know, mobile space in a long time because everyone's just you know shit afraid of facebook essentially the other thing which is definitely us focused is that what i don't understand is if i didn't have my healthcare guaranteed i wouldn't start a company that's the absolute god's honest truth here in the uk we are lucky we have like a national health service so whether i'm employed or unemployed i've got healthcare you know i'm saying right whereas in the states it's like well you know what yeah gap between the rich and poor is bigger than ever it's ever been before um and you're on your own. And if you leave your job, you're not getting healthcare. So why why would anybody take the risk really of starting a company? Do you see what I mean? Like it's a, it's almost tantamount to like recklessness to be like, okay, I'm leaving my job, and if I get ill, you know, God help me, essentially, right? Um, oh, so I think and I think the fact that the Democrats are pushing for you know all the candidates seem to be pushing for some kind of form of universal healthcare or some kind of closer to it, right? I think it will help entrepreneurship, and that's what a lot of people don't understand about you know these right wings to be like oh right wingers to be like oh socialism, but actually this type of these type of programs help capitalism. <laughs> they make people more likely to take to become entrepreneurs. Shout out to our sponsor MIT, who needs no introduction. They are hiring for a remote senior staff writer. They'd need you under minimal supervision, write articles on a variety of emerging technology topics while ensuring a consistent style of voice and quality matching MIT Horizon requirements. Link for the position in the show notes. Have you seen this new Malcolm X documentary on Netflix? I have not. Have you? Yeah, so it's called Who Killed Malcolm X? And essentially they reveal actually who are the actual gunmen behind you know malcolm x's assassination it turned out the people that went to jail for his murder a lot of them were innocent and there were actual the actual killers were roaming the street to this day um, wow. but that's not the main point i wanted to make there's a few points one essentially malcolm x died penniless and homeless his actual killers were kind of protected and celebrated within their community of newark people knew who the person was that actually killed him and actually just kind of wow. you know allowed him to kind of rebrand and live his life essentially 
Now, the only reason why I bring this up, I think everybody should watch the documentary full stop because it's a very you know, important historical um, uh, documentary. But I think it made me stop and ponder where I was like, I understand now why people are like, you know what? I'm just trying to get my money. F helping people. Because <laughs> a lot of times our leaders and like the people that are putting everything on the line to help people, Targeted. they end up, they end up not just targeted, they end up abandoned by the very community they, they, they seek to help. Nobody protects them. They end up penniless. Their family's at risk. And it's like, wow, man, we've got to really do a better job of protecting, you know, you know, our so-called leaders. I don't know. Is anything I'm saying have any validity? Because it's just like, I, sometimes I see the conversation on Twitter and people are like, oh, black capitalism, black capitalism, bun you, black capitalist, whatever, whatever, forget you guys, Jay-Z and Diddy. And I'm like, well, what do you want them to do? You want them to be like Malcolm and end up dead and homeless and penniless and their killers celebrate? I feel that it's falling too much into that binary view of thinking. Like either I'm yeah. helping people and then I'm ending up you know, exposed, broke, penniless, and, you know, spent all my energy helping people and then didn't spend any uh, enough time looking after myself. Or it's, I'm going to abandon all sense of community and just do me. Um, and I, I feel like there is some medium place between those two things. I think, I think we are good examples of that. Like, I'm not saying we're perfect and, you know, or nor are we like super rich or anything like that. But on the one hand, you know, we're working, we're building sustainable businesses. We're generating like income. We're like hiring people from our community into our company. So we're reinvesting in that. But at the same time, we're using the platform that we've made to shine a light on uncomfortable issues that we feel should be discussed so that we can create lasting change. And I do, I, I do feel, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to live in a time where that's possible. We're very mm. fortunate to live in a time where, you know, I can work at a company, but also have views that are my own and express those views openly without, you know, risking losing my job. And I don't think that was something that previous generations could necessarily do. I also think, you know, I'm, I'm not about the short term, you know, neither of us are like, we, we accepted that when we started our companies and we accepted that when we decided to work in diversity, as opposed to selling shoes or like whatever, we both Mm. realized that if if we want things to be better in the future than they are right now, we're going to have to operate in a difficult space. Like you and I both could be making way more money if we were doing other things, but we chose to work in diversity inclusion for a reason. And so I just think like, you know, especially seeing what's happening in, in, in the UK and the U S you know, I see a lot of people saying we're living in the golden age of white collar crime. It's not only Mm -hmm. us and our community saying, I got to do me, you know, we see people in the most powerful positions of government across the world going, I need to fill my pockets, and I need to help my friends fill theirs. You know, this is just a human nature thing. We are greedy. We are greedy, greedy people, and we always want more. But I just think it's a cop out. For me, it's a cop out if you're just like, oh, no, I just need to, I need to do me, I need to look after, you know, myself, my people. And I, I can't participate in the greater good and in the greater cause because that's just how we end up. To be honest, that's probably how we ended up where we are right now. Yeah, you know what? You're 100% right. I, I don't think it's something where, you know, I fully bought into that whatsoever. But watching that documentary, I was just like, oh, I can understand sometimes a bit more now <laughs> after seeing that. But you're right. It's all about balance. And I think it's possible to kind of... Um, find that middle ground between making sure that you know you're okay and your family is okay and at the same time serving um you know your community um but i do think when you watch the documentary it's a thing where we as a community have to do better by the people that are actually trying yes because, exactly um, and that's the ultimate lesson it's not necessarily everybody you know i'm doing me but i think you know we've got to be like okay cool who are the people that are actually putting themselves at risk and doing you know doing work for the community at their own expense like can we make sure they're okay because otherwise how do we you know incentivize anybody else step up and help 
and you know who do we stand for and what do we stand up against like each of us as individuals have to know that deep down and and stay true to it because otherwise you just end up lost Yo, that's this episode of Techish wrapped up. Uh, we'll catch you next week. Use the hashtag Techish to give us a hit up and, and chat to us. Uh, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash techish. And we'll see you next week. Peace. Peace. Bye.